Well, most of you have been with us along the way, but if you're just joining us, we are nearing the end of a quick series through First and Second Kings, which I've said before tells the story of Israel's fall all the way from her golden age under King Solomon down to the day when they are taken captive by Babylon and forced into exile, uh, in the Babylonian exile. And as we're reading along, you know, it's a it's a slow downfall, a downward spiral, you could say. Things get worse and worse. They're darker and darker every week as we come to the scriptures. And some of you are reading along, about a third or a half of you or so are reading along with this in the Bible reading plan as well. Uh, and I wonder if you're noticing some things. Maybe you are reading these stories in the morning, and then you're reading the newspaper after that. And when you read the stories in the scripture, you're reading of a God's people in decline and faithlessness all around, and things are getting darker and darker, and injustice in many places. And then you open your newspaper, and you read of God's people in decline, right? The church in decline. And a lot of stories of faithlessness among our leaders that are in the newspaper, bringing great shame upon the church. Uh, You're reading of injustices in the nation, and I wonder if you're thinking to yourself, this is a little too familiar. Like, I I don't like when I'm reading about the same things here that I am here, when it's that kind of stuff. Well, by all appearances, it does look like it's becoming a darker and darker time for the church. Uh, we're, We're declining more and more in numbers, certainly. And at least the stories of faithlessness are more and more. Whether or not there's more faithlessness in the church is really tough to say because none of us go to all the churches and know what's going on everywhere. But in as much as things are getting darker, we do have kind of a bright word of encouragement here in these stories. The more faithless the kings become, the more prominent the prophets become in First and Second Kings, right? We've gotten to the point where we're not reading about Solomon and all the things he did anymore. When a king gets mentioned, it's basically this king took the throne, he reigned this many years, he was faithless, he died, the end, and then we just go on to the next king, right? They're not the heroes in the story anymore, but God is raising up other heroes, isn't he? Holy prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And we're reading about the wonderful things that they did. The Lord has a lesson there. When things get dark, he tends to raise up a very faithful and holy minority who shine like bright lights. And the question we need to be asking ourselves is, if things continue to get darker for the church here in in our country, how can I be one of those holy, brightly shining people? How can I remain faithful if things continue to slip further and further into faithlessness? Uh, We're going to look at a story today that gives us some of the answer to that, and I pray the Lord uses it to make of us a holy, zealous, and a prayerful people right here at Calvary Baptist. Before we get into that, though, I want to speak to any of you who are not Christians this morning, because it's very strange to come to a church like this and hear people singing to a Jesus that maybe you know about or maybe you don't know about and and you don't believe in, and you're like, who's this Jesus they're singing about? And, And now we open the Bible and we get instruction that's aimed at God's people, right? And so you can sit there in the pew and think to yourself, okay, what? am I supposed to do with this? I'm not one of these people like all these other people. Well, here, here is what the Lord may do in your heart this morning. Many times in the scriptures, he gives instruction that is meant specifically for his people, not meant for everybody else. And this is one of those Sundays. But the Lord could still work powerfully in your heart because uh, he may be knocking on the door of your heart saying, uh, I'm after you. I desire you. And he may say to you even, this is the kind of person I want to make you into. Uh, when, when the Lord calls people to himself, 
he changes them. He makes them new. And that's a promise he makes to you. If you'll turn and you'll trust him, he'll make you new. And you might be wondering, well, what kind of person will he make me into if I trust this gospel, if I believe in this Jesus? This will answer some of that question. This is a picture of the person he may make you into. If that moves you to say that Jesus is good and I want to trust him, here's the call that I would make to you. Uh, I would call you to turn from everything that you trust in and identify yourself as and turn to Jesus Christ and say, I, I am his. He is God made man come to earth to rescue us. And I trust him as rescuer. I also trust him as Lord. I trust him as God. I trust him as everything that he says he is. This is what the scriptures call repenting and believing the gospel, turning from everything you are and becoming his with everything that you are, your whole heart and faith. I call everyone to do that very thing this morning. And if at any point in this message you're thinking, I'm going to follow this Jesus, that's what you need to do. Turn and believe in Jesus Christ. That's my word to any of you who may not be believers this morning. I think the Lord calls you into that this morning. For the rest of us, we need to know the background. Actually, we all need to know the background of this story. Uh, things have gotten darker for Israel. I've already given that away. Uh, a very faithless king has ruled after another faithless king who ruled after another faithless king. So things with their enemy, Syria, have gotten worse and worse. They're just getting routed in battle. And it's gotten so bad that the king dies and leaves the kingdom to his son. And this new king, Joash, takes the throne with an army that has 10 chariots left and 50 horsemen left to defend all of Israel with. Meanwhile, there's this growing bully, Syria, who keeps defeating them in battle. So things are looking bleak. To make matters worse, this king proves to be faithless also, so he gets routed a couple of times. And then, during his reign, the prophet Elisha begins dying. So, so their last hope that any good might happen is on his deathbed. So the king, in desperation, goes and visits Elisha, and this is the story of that visit. We're going to read verses 14 through 19 in 2 Kings 13. The Spirit says, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made a complete end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And so he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him. And said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you'd made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. The words of the Lord. Through these words, God calls his people 
to live with a holy and righteous zeal, a prayerful zeal. If indeed times become darker for the church in the coming decades, my prayer is that he would call even this morning the very people in this room to shine with a bright holiness, with zealous prayer in the same way that he left prophets like Elijah and Elisha to shine in Israel in their times of darkness. Now, a little more of the story leading up to this. Some of you know this and some of you don't. Elisha is the second in a line of two great prophets, and the first one has a similar name, Elijah. It's really hard to talk about these two because you have to be very careful to say Elijah and Elisha, which sounds so similar and everybody gets all confused, but they look different enough on the page that it works out pretty well for us. So Elijah is the first of these great prophets that comes to power, performs great and mighty miracles. He prays even that there would be a drought for three and a half years and there's a drought for three and a half years. His prayers have that kind of power. And eventually, the Lord calls him up to heaven. He's one of few people in the scripture who never dies, but instead, the Lord sends down chariots and takes him up into heaven. At that point, something is said that is repeated in this story uh, that helps it to make sense. Now, you may have been puzzled when we read this a moment ago. And here the king of Israel comes to Elisha and his cry to him is, my father and my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. You might be thinking, what does that mean? That's a strange thing to say to somebody as they are dying. Well, there's a, a, long, a long line of this. Let's flip back to chapter two and I'll show you somewhere else where this phrase is said. So Elisha is the fir- Elijah is the first prophet. I already did it, there it is. Elijah is the first prophet He's working in great power. Things are getting dark for Israel. He's kind of the last hope for Israel because he's the one holy one. He's the one who can pray and they would win the battle. But he is about to be taken up into heaven and Elisha, his servant and his student, is not happy about this. So they're going to the place where the Lord is going to take him. Elijah walks up to the Jordan River, takes his cloak, and he slaps the river with his cloak. And the waters part And they both walk through them together to the place where the Lord will come and take Elijah. Elijah looks to Elisha and he says, now as I go, what should I give you? And Elisha says, well, give me a double portion of of your spirit, right? I mean, you're the last hope for Israel. You're the only one living in holiness who has the power to pray like this. Let have a successor so that Israel can still continue to thrive. So he asks for a double portion of his spirit. Uh, More or less, Elijah says yes, but it's complicated. There's more to it than that. The chariots and the horsemen come down to get Elijah. And let's look at verse 12, what Elisha cries to him. The same strange phrase, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So Elisha said to Elijah, as he was leaving, the same thing that the king is now saying to Elisha as he is leaving. Elisha learns through this whole process that he will receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Uh, He weeps that Elijah is gone. He tears his clothes, and then he takes Elijah's cloak. He walks back to the Jordan River. 
He slaps the Jordan River with the cloak and the waters part for him. A sign that he's the big guy now. He's the one with the power of the prophet now. Okay, fast forward back to where we are today. What's going on here? Elijah had looked to Elisha with the spirit that said, if you're gone, what do we have left, right? You're the one who can call down chariots from heaven and go back up. You're the one that wins us battles. You are the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. You're the military power, Elijah, of Israel. The power rests in you. And now, decades later, this king is coming to Elisha and saying the same thing. We're at our wit's end. If you're gone... The chariots and the horsemen are gone. I only have 10 chariots and 50 horsemen, but the number is irrelevant. The point is, is the prophet there praying for us? Because that's where the victory comes. So what this phrase means then, as the king says it, and as Elisha had said it to Elijah, is that these holy prophets and the power of their prayers, they are the true military power of Israel. They are the ones who win battles, right? Put not your trust in horses, right? When the holy men of God pray, that's when the battle is won. And so to lose Elijah and lose his prayers and lose his power was to lose everything for Israel. Those holy men of God were the chariots and the horsemen for Israel. This is part of that broader theme I talked about. As things get darker and darker for Israel, the importance of the holy men of God, of the prophets, becomes greater and greater. They become more and more crucial for Israel's success. You get a faithless king, you need a faithful prophet even more to shine as a light in the darkness. There rests the power. There rests the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. That means something for us today if we sense things getting darker here. If we sense the church becoming less and less faithful. If we sense the church in decline, the way that Israel was in decline. And to some degree for our nation too, if we fear that our nation may be in decline, if we sense that our nation is becoming less and less faithful. Well, that means we must identify the true source of power. What are the chariots and the horsemen of the church? What are the chariots and the horsemen for our nation? Now, if we can find that, if we can find where the power rests, well, there rests some great blessing for the church, some great power for the church. So who are the Elijahs and Elishas of the church today? Who are the people who can pray? And when they pray, the Lord moves. Who are those people? And how can I be one of them? Well, that's a question that the Lord answers in James chapter 5. So if you have a Bible open, let's look to James chapter 5. And James, he will use the same imagery. He'll actually talk about Elijah and his powerful work. And he will answer the question for us, well, who, who can pray like that today and find such great power in their prayers? I believe it's two groups of people who have that kind of power in their prayer. If we look at James chapter 5, the second to last paragraph, which would be verses 13 to 18, we read about prayer that powerful. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? 
let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Okay, I'll stop there. It's already named one group that has that kind of power given to their prayers. If you are very sick, who are you supposed to call to come and pray for you? The elders of the church, right? Uh, you could translate that pastors if you want to. Uh, well, the office that we call a pastor is called sometimes in the New Testament elder and other times overseer or other times the verb to shepherd, which is the same word as pastor, is used. All one office there. So James's idea here is if your church is healthy and established, it should have raised up by now multiple men who can serve in this role. And if you are sick, call all of them to come and pray for you. This kind of echoes the Apostle Paul's words, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's what these guys are committed to, prayer and the word. That's what pastors devote themselves to, prayer and the word. So there's a special calling put on people in the office that I hold and other pastors all over the world to pray for their people. God says, pastor, pray, pastor, pray. Pastor, when they're sick, go pray for them. Pastor, when they really need help, go and pray for them. That's part of the job, part of what a pastor must do. And with that comes the commission. I think James is saying here a special power in the prayers. You can gather them together, get them in the room, get them praying, and there's power in that prayer. That makes sense because some of the duties of a prophet are also the duties of a pastor. It's not a one-to-one But the prophet had to get up in front of everybody and say what the Lord said, whether it cost him a lot or a little. And in the same way, the Lord communicates now through his word, but a pastor has to get up and say what it says, whether it costs him a lot or a little. There's some similarity there. And some of that responsibility then passed down to the pastors in the church. But that's not it. That's only one group. Let's keep reading. We pick up halfway through verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So who's the second group? Righteous people, right? Holy people, people who live in great holiness. Their prayers are powerful. And look at who he compares them to. This same pair of prophets here, not Elisha, who we read about today, but Elijah, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth, and then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James is emphasizing here, these holy men who did these incredible things, they were people just like you. They weren't like Superman, superhero got special powers and they can do things that other people can't do. That's not what they were. They were just ordinary people. But they lived in holiness and they prayed fervently and there is great power in that. So that prophetic power, you might say, the the strength that Elijah and Elisha had is given to two groups of people in the church today pastors, who I hope are also holy people, and holy people. That means that each and every one of you can be the chariots and the horsemen of the church. 
Where does the power of the church rest? In holy people who pray fervently. That's, that's our first point today. The church's power today rests in the prayers of pastors and holy people. It's a power that we cannot afford to underestimate. Now that means something when it comes to all of the work that we are trying to do for the church and how much we put into the church, right? Most of us here in this room actively serve our church and give from what God gives to us to our church. And we do that with enthusiasm. But if the prayers of the people, of holy people, are the chariots and horsemen of the church, that means that your holiness and your fervent prayer can make an even bigger difference for the church than the work you do for it and the money that you give to it. The church's power today rests in the prayers of pastors and of holy people. At different phases of life, that's going to hit you a little bit differently. We were talking in Sunday school today. There's a lot of recent college graduates there. uh, And there's such a pressure on young people. Some of you are in high school here today or in middle school or even elementary school. we got some kids in the service today. Uh, And as you grow, you're going to hear this message over and over from the world that you have got to be a world changer and you've got to make your impact in the world, right? And look what Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs did before you, and you've got to go do something big like that for the world. Now, when you receive all of this pressure, what the Word of God is saying to you is, you want to really make a difference in the world. Repent of sin, live in holiness, and pray fervently. That's going to be a bigger deal than whatever dream is on your heart that you want to accomplish for the world. Or whatever dream that's not on your heart that you wish were there and you're wondering, why am I not a visionary that has all these world-changing ideas? You can change the world just by living in holiness and praying. You may not even know how until the last day when the Lord comes back and says, here is everything that I did through your prayers. But the power rests in holy people who pray. That means something for those of you that are in your prime serving. Some of you right now are chairing committees and you're earning more money than you've ever earned in your life and so you're able to give more than you've ever given. And the Lord loves and blesses all of these things. But do not forget that you can make a bigger difference, have a bigger impact if you would repent of all sin, live in holiness, and pray fervently for the church. That will do more than everything else that you are doing to serve the church. And still others of you are nearing the end of your time of service, or you've been serving for a long time and now you're looking back and you're saying, my body can't do it anymore. I can't teach anymore. I can't do the things I used to do. I can't serve as deacon anymore. And and that is a hard season because you're looking back on it all saying it was so fond. I loved doing it. And and a lot of times you're tempted to say, what good am I now for the kingdom? Like, I I can't do anything. And I want to do something for the Lord. And I want you to know that the next 10 or 20 years of your life could be the most effective for the gospel. If you would continue to live in holiness and if you would pray fervently for the church. Why is that? Because the chariots and the horsemen rest in holy people who pray. That's where the power is. And you can still do that for the church. This means something for those of us who are trying to work for the kingdom and have secret sins in our lives that we have not repented of. 
It means that you can have a greater impact if you would repent of that secret sin, live in holiness and pray. It means that secret sin is probably holding back from you effectiveness in your ministry. Why? Because the chariots and the horsemen rest in holy people when they pray. So it means for the church. It means something for the country as well, right? America is not God's nation the way that Israel was God's nation, uh, but we are commanded as Christians to pray for those in office, right? To pray for public officials high and low and everywhere. So there is still much benefit to a nation when the holy people of God pray. That's part of our role in society to pray for them. And that means that the chariots and the horsemen of the United States are not in the Oval Office. The chariots and horsemen of the United States are in the holy people who pray for their country. That's where our power rests. It means that the chariots and the horsemen of China are not found in hypersonic missiles. It's found in that flourishing underground church that President Xi is actually trying to persecute and get rid of. They are his greatest asset as he is on the world's stage. It means that in every nation on earth, the most powerful force that it has is the holy people of God who are praying for them. That means something for our engagement in politics. Too many of us have given ourselves to politics because we think that if we can get the right guy in the White House or the right gal in the White House, everything will be okay, right? Our problems will go away. Uh, The biggest goal is get the right person in the White House, right? And when we fall for that fallacy, we start to get angry at our friends. We argue with people. We get nasty online. We get involved in things we shouldn't be involved in. Our priorities start getting out of whack. What's the root problem in all of that? The root problem is that we are prone to thinking that the chariots and the horsemen of the United States are in the Oval Office, and they aren't. No. The power of the United States is in holy people who pray. So if you're a citizen, you should vote. It's your duty. You should do that. But that's not the greatest thing you can do for your country. No, if you can walk in holiness and pray for your nation's leaders, you will see greater things than you could accomplish through any involvement in politics. So church, don't give yourself to politics. Be involved in it in a godly way, but give yourself to holiness and prayer because that's what's going to make the difference for our country. All right, so that's our first point. The church's power today rests in the prayers of pastors and holy people. Would God raise us up to be those people for our church and for our country? Let's go back to the story. We're back to 2 Kings 13. And the story is going to get even more strange and, and awkward. So the king then, to go back to it, has given this cry of confession, this desperate cry, oh, you are the power of Israel, Elisha. If you die, we're done. What are we going to do? And so he sees that Elisha is, is the, the holy man of God of the real power, and the Lord rewards that with victory over Syria, over their big bad enemy. And this really neat buildup happens, you know, where he's, he's like, okay, take a bow, and he takes the bow. Okay, draw the bow, and he draws the bow. Okay, open the window, and he opens the window, and then he shoots the arrow out of the east-facing window. And what's the significance of that? Well, he says that arrow represents the Lord's victory over Syria. And so he shot it eastward toward a place called Aphek, and very soon Israel would route Syria over toward the east in that place called Aphek. So so the the arrow symbolizes Syria just getting, right? 
Very important here is that the meaning of the arrow is the Lord's victory over Syria. Right? We're gonna, I'm going to drill that in your brain. The arrow means the Lord's victory over Syria. All right? Somebody tell me what the arrow means. The Lord's victory over Syria. Okay, that's really important for understanding the rest of the story. Okay, then he's not done. Prophet tells him, okay, take the arrows and strike the ground with them which almost certainly means draw the bow back and shoot the ground with them. Because anytime they talk about somebody being struck with an arrow, they mean being shot with an arrow, right? So, so he's pulling back the bow and shooting it at the ground. Now, what do the arrows mean? Victory over Syria, right? Okay, so you're the king who's trying to beat Syria and you're pulling back the bow and, and you can just picture this image of the Lord in heaven pulling back the bow and just, just unleashing on Syria, right? Boom, 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 boom. Okay, you're the king who really wants to see Syria go down. How are you going to handle this? Are you going to, eh, I'll pull it back halfway and eh, let it go down a little bit. Or are you going to empty all of your arrows, go back, get some more arrows, bring those arrows, fire them, light them on fire before you fire them at the ground and just unleash, right, with all the zeal in the world. Because you know what the arrow means. It means the Lord's victory over Syria. You, you, want the, you want the thing to happen, right? So what he should be doing is attacking this thing with all the zeal in the world. But his life shows that he doesn't have a whole lot of confidence in God's promise. And so he walks over, takes three shots at the ground, and just stops, leaving arrows in the quiver. And the prophet is just like, what? What are you doing? You should have emptied all the arrows. You should have at least shot five or six. You would have made a complete end of them. But now you're just going to defeat them three times. You didn't obey completely and with zeal. So what's the point there? Well, the point is when the Lord promises victory and gives you a role in it, you need to obey completely and with zeal, right? Don't bring half-hearted obedience when the Lord is promising you victory. Bring the full obedience and do it with all the zeal that you can muster up. That's our second point today. When God promises victory and gives you a part in it, obey him completely and with zeal. I know that's long. To those of you writing down, I apologize. That was long. <laughs> so let me apply this. In, in, a, in a few places in the scripture, we get promises and commands bundled together, right? Some of the promises and commands are linked. Uh, one classic example is the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother so that it will go well with you and you'll live long in the land, right? Promise tied to a commandment. If you obey your parents and honor your parents, you'll live long in the land, you'll have a good life there. And we miss this a lot of times, but the New Testament repeats that command and repeats and emphasizes the promise, which means that there's still some measure of that available to us today. If, if you want a good and long life, one of the easier ways to, to, to get some of that blessing is just live a life that honors your parents, honor their memory if they've already gone on, honor them with your words when you're out of the house, and honor them with your obedience when you are in the house. Now, if it's tied that directly, right, if, if, if God's literally saying, like, you'll live a little longer and your life will be better if you obey and honor your parents, just common sense, like, you should probably just put all the energy you can into that, right, so that you can receive the blessing in return. 
which means really simply, like young men, call your mom. Your mom wants to talk to you. Call your mom, right? If you got kids and your parents live far away, take the kids to see the grandparents and honor. Do all the things that people who honor their parents do. And do that with zeal because the Lord's storing up blessing for you. So that's just one application of it. And it's a little indirect. More directly, this story is about the Lord's victory over his enemies, right? And the promise is victory over the enemies. Those battles teach us about spiritual warfare as Christians, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the evils and the principalities in this world, the spirits and the spiritual warfare. We're fighting a war against Satan and his minions. We are promised victory in that war, and we are given a lot of commands about how to bring about that victory, right? Peter confesses to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus says, on that confession, on that rock, I'll build my church, All right? So he, he tells us how he builds the church on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, or in the Great Commission, he promises, I will be with you to the very end of the age and tells us, go and proclaim the gospel to all the world and make disciples in all of the world. So there's a promise of victory that he's with us and a command to make disciples all over the world, right? So you see that there's a link there. Uh, Similarly, Ephesians 6 tells us you're in a spiritual battle. Put on the whole armor of God, right? God gives you armor. Put it on, right? So some total of that whole thing is basically receive the word in faith, proclaim it, and, and pray. Those are the weapons of the kingdom. You are armed for this fight. Trust the word that you read. Proclaim the word that you read. Pray to the Lord. Put on that whole armor and you are ready to fight. Not all that different from the king having arrows and having the freedom to shoot them into the ground. So so if he needs to shoot all the arrows, we need to put on all the armor. We need to follow his commands with so much zeal and so much fullness that the victory just abounds. For some of us, very practically, that just means that you've been thinking for a while about somebody you need to bring the gospel to. And and maybe that word is enough to put you over the edge and say, you know what, I trust Jesus enough. He'll be with me whether I get shamed for it or whether the person comes to Christ. He'll be with me. That's enough for the Lord to push you over the edge so that you will bring the gospel to that person. Many of us have been Christians for a while and we have long said, I need to pray more, right? I wish I prayed more than I did. Okay, if we've got that kind of encouragement to put on the whole armor, to devote ourselves to zealous prayer, to that kind of power that comes with zealous prayer, oh, would the Lord use that in your life to turn you into a holy, prayerful, zealous saint? Perhaps the Lord will use that to do that very thing for you. The sum total of it is, if he needed to shoot all of the arrows, we need to shoot all of the arrows, right? Let's obey his commands completely and with zeal as we seek the victory that he has already promised. So, in darkening times, how does God work in power? He does it through his people when they live and pray with a zealous holiness. It's going to be one of those Elijah and Elisha lights shining in a dark era. What do you need to do? Live and pray with a zealous holiness. 
And I believe for each and every one of you, God is calling you to be one of those people, whether things get darker or lighter for the Christian church. Let me close with what this means for us as a church. Some of you have been here a long time. You could tell the story of our history better than I could tell it. Uh, others of you are new and you're like, what, what is this place? What's their story? I'll tell you the last like 15 or so years of our story. Uh, we had in uh, most of the 2010s uh, and, and a little bit of the ends of the 2000s, uh, just a decade of hard years in a row. Uh, difficult things that happened, tragic things that happened, a lot of decline in our church. And a big factor in turning that around was a lot of people started to get together and praying. Um, by the time I got here, things had begun to turn around. The church was growing again. The Lord was bringing a lot of great blessing, and he was doing it through people who prayed. Uh, and then the first year that I was here, which was 2019, uh, was a very blessed year where God answered a lot of prayers. There were people who were very sick that God miraculously healed. Uh, there were new people coming in and sticking around. The Lord was growing the church again. It was a really exciting time for us. And so we looked with great hope to the future and thought, okay, maybe the Lord is turning things around for good. And then the Lord demonstrated that he can do whatever he pleases to do. And Corona came through. Almost all of our new young people moved away and all of that growth we gained in the first year was wiped out. Uh, it accelerated some of the difficult trends with some of our older folks who aren't able to be here. Uh, and things have become even harder for us. We had another, another really difficult, really hard 18 months. Now we're looking to the future and we're saying, okay, Lord, you have demonstrated you can do whatever you want, right? You, you can answer our prayers. We're not entitled to you answering our prayers, right? He can do as he sees fit with our work and our gifts and our prayers. Here's what we desire to happen. Uh, we do desire that one day you guys will all come in here and you'd be so shoulder to shoulder with other people that you'd be like, ah, it's getting kind of cramped in here, right? Now you've got space. You can spread out if you want to. Uh, we want the day to come where this building is full. And I think all of us probably want that day to come. But we want to do something with that. We don't want to fill this building and then build a bigger one and fill it too. Uh, we want Greenwood to have lots of healthy churches with a high regard for Jesus Christ and the word of God. And we believe the best thing we can do to help that is to get this church as full and healthy as we can and then start getting rid of people. We'd send 10 families and a trained pastor to some struggling church down the road that doesn't have a pastor and doesn't have enough people to do all the things they want to do. Let's give them our best people, right? Then fill it up again and then send another crew out somewhere else. See how much impact we can have on this area. Doing it. That's our desire. Now, some of you are looking at that and you're like, that's awesome and that's ridiculously lofty. How are we ever going to do that, right? Well, I'll tell you that how the Lord will do I can't tell you that the Lord will do it. He may not do it, but I'll tell you how if he does it. Through holy people praying. That's where the power is going to come from. If we want to see that vision become reality in 15 years, yeah, your work matters. Your gifts matter. Pay, the day we pay the debt off will really matter if the Lord brings it. But what's going to matter the most? If, if the people in this room right now can say, we're going to live in holiness. We're, we're going to be those people that everybody else thinks is weird because we're living in holiness and we're going to dedicate ourselves to prayer. If we can do that, therein lies the chariots and the horsemen of Calvary Baptist Church. Those of you that will dedicate yourself to holiness and to pray. So let's start right now. You guys want to start right now? All right, let's pray. Let's ask him.